Good morning. As we continue our study of the Lord's Prayer, I am reminded of a story I once heard about a Republican and a Democratic candidate for office who were meeting in a town hall debate. In the course of the discussion, the subject of religion came up, and the Republican candidate said to the Democrat, I'll bet you $20 you don't even know the words to the Lord's Prayer. And the Democrat responded, I'll take your bet. I do know the words to the Lord's Prayer. Great, the Republican replied, let's hear it. And the Democrat responded, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Well, the Republican looked stunned. And then he took out his wallet and handed his opponent $20 saying, I can't believe you actually knew it. <laughs> it is an old joke, but it points to the struggle that many people have with this prayer. Not simply forgetting the words to the Lord's Prayer, but even if they remember them, not fully comprehending their meaning. That's particularly true in the second line of the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think this is one of the most important lines in the entire prayer, announcing God's kingdom and inviting people to be a part of it and encouraging people to not only pray, but to live in such a way that God's kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. Ronnie Millsap, the country singer, was born blind, and I have heard of him tell of his grandmothers leading him in nearly constant prayer for healing. She took him from one tent meeting to the next, one faith healer to the next, trying to get him sight. Exorcisms were performed, hands were laid on his eyes, and prayers and laments were lined up and lifted up to God in harmony. Day after day, week after week, year after year, but nothing happened. Ronnie's grandmother questioned her faithfulness. If, if I just had the faith of a mustard seed, God would give you sight. I must not be praying correctly. I must not be praying enough. And then Jesus told us a parable about our need to pray always and not lose heart. He said in a certain city there was a judge who near, neither feared God nor had respect for people. In that city there was a widow who kept coming to him and saying, grant me justice against my opponent. For a while he refused, but later he said to himself, though I have no fear of God, no respect for anyone, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice so that she may not wear me out by continually coming. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says, and will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long in helping them? I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. And yet when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Now, in the ancient world, a widow was often regarded as one of the most vulnerable members of the human family. Without life insurance, no social security, dependent on her security with the males who were still alive when her husband died, 
The plight of the widow was so serious that the Jewish people actually created laws specifically to protect the rights of widows. Nonetheless, someone had wronged her and she brings her case before the judge, but he doesn't pay any attention to her. He just spits on her. And she keeps coming back and coming back and coming back. And every time the judge turns around, there she is. I see her sitting on the newspaper on his porch in the morning, on the front row of the courtroom every day, on the stool next to him at the lunchroom counter, following him up those back steps to his chambers, stepping into the dry cleaners on his way home from work. And when he opens the door after the evening news to let the cat back in, she is there to hand the cat to him. Well, in the end, the widow got to the judge. Because this widow bothers me, I will vindicate her or she will wear me out by her continual coming. Well, I doubt if the Bar Association gave him an award for exemplary performance, but the widow did get things put right. Now, Jesus reasons that if this jerk of a judge will do what is right in order to get rid of the widow, how much more will God vindicate those who pray? This parable is built on the ancient logic of lesser to greater. Now, we're familiar with this logic. We've heard it in other places in Scripture. If earthly parents give good things to their children, how much better will it be that the heavenly parent will give us? If earthly rulers have power, then how much more power does the Almighty God have? So it comes down to the logic is simple. If, if lesser humans do something good, how much better the greater God will do? So the logic of this parable goes, if an unjust judge will slowly give in to a widow's persistent pleas for justice, how much more quickly will God give in to our persistent pleas for justice? But that logic leaves an awful taste in our mouth and it raises all sorts of questions. What kind of God would require us to be annoying before granting us justice. Jesus loves me, this I know, as long as I bug him so? I don't think so. Ronnie Millsap's grandmother questioned her faithfulness. If I just had the faith of a mustard seed, God would give you sight. I must not be praying correctly. I must not be praying enough. Ronnie's grandmother questioned God. How many prayers, God? How much faith does God require before God will grant sight to an innocent little boy? Whenever we bow our heads in prayer, we are making a theological statement about the nature of God by what we decide to pray. Now, we have prayer disciplines, prayer chains, prayer warriors, prayer vigils. We are trying to maximize the power of prayer. But this scripture implies that God, at best, must be per persuaded to be just and, at worst, must be manipulated. And it says that prayer is a method of manipulation. Maybe God will respond if I pray longer. You know, the tortoise beats the hare. Or maybe God will respond if we all pray together. There's power in numbers. 
Or maybe God will listen if I'm on my knees offering up silent prayer to the Almighty. Or if I'm standing up with my hands raised to heaven, speaking in tongues. Sometimes our approach to prayer turns God into a Santa Claus or transforms the deity into a puzzle box filled with blessing. And if we're just good enough to stay off God's naughty list, we'll get what we need. How we pray and how much we pray shows how good we are. Or if we're just persistent enough, we will unlock God's heart and find in there a treasure trove of mercy, justice, and love. Well, this is the God this parable seems to present. A God who leaves a bad taste in my mouth and leaves Ronnie Millsap blind. To tell you the truth, if I had been Luke's editor, I would have suggested he either rewrite the parable or just omit it from the gospel altogether. But there it is, stuck right at the beginning of the 18th chapter, and too many people have seen it by now for us to get rid of it. So we need to figure out what does this mean for us. Perhaps if we look at the parable more closely, we may see it differently and have a different view of prayer and of the God that it presents to us. Jesus doesn't offer this parable and leave it just hanging there for us to make whatever we want of it. He knows that to speak of prayer is to speak of God, and that makes it complicated. So Jesus gives us a context to hear the story in. After narrating the judge's slow and reluctant response to the widow, he says, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long in helping them? I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. And yet when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? What was that last line? When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? What? Wait, what is that about? Where did that last line come from? It almost sounds like that Jesus forgot what he was talking about and went off on a little tangent. But maybe this odd reference to the Son of Man coming is the key to the whole parable. Jesus doesn't want us to hear the parable as talking about just any old justice, but the justice that comes when Jesus comes in final victory. Jesus wants the disciples and us to hear the parable in an eschatological context. Eschatological is just one of those big $3 seminary words that we use in sermons. They're kind of show-off words. But there's no better word for what Jesus is talking about than eschatology. Eschatology comes from the Greek word eschaton, which means the end. So eschatology is the study of the end, specifically the end of time, the end of history, when Jesus returns, the, the resurrection of the dead, not the Alpha, but the Omega. Now, most of us identify eschatology with the book of Revelation with all of its wild apocalyptic literature and imagery, but eschatology actually is found throughout the entire Gospels. Scholars talk about this eschatological imagery in the hope for completion and the perfection of all things. 
It's kind of like the final state of our world, where there's an end to violence, suffering, and pain, where the lion and the lamb lie down in peace together. We can see the world as it was meant to be, not as it is. And Jesus came announcing that the kingdom of heaven has come near. He invited us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. But our prayer is not simply for the end of history as we know it, but that we might experience a taste of these things here and now. So that we could also become a part of bringing that kingdom near. So when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we are inviting God to give us a vision for the world as it should be. And then to not only pray, but to work to help that vision become a reality. Every generation has had its version of the late great planet Earth or the Left Behind series or some person who comes and says that Jesus is coming on this day at this hour. And they've all been wrong. Every time there's a new century, there have been people gathered on some hilltop or the top of some building at 11.59 p.m. on December 31st, waiting expectantly for Jesus to appear at the stroke of midnight. Although, honestly, I'm not really sure which time zone Jesus would choose. But the coming of man is not an event you can synchronize your watch to or note on a calendar or set your alarm on the smartphone. It's not about time. It is about divine eternity touching the present moment, our experience now. When the Son of Man comes is a Christian experience. We Christians really live in a weird time frame, the already and the not yet. Christ has already been born and lived and died and risen for us. Christ has already given to us salvation. We already experience Christ's constant loving presence in the form of the Holy Spirit, but we have not yet seen peace cover our earth. We have not yet seen an end to sickness and death. We have not yet been able to live in the fullness of the reign of God. We have not yet been able to live in a world that is just for all of God's creatures. Jesus came, and Jesus' coming is a great paradox for our faith. The already and the not yet time. It is like driving on a country road in the middle of a dark night. Over the hill we can see the car's headlights beaming towards us, and we are already experiencing the car. We are switching our lights on to low beam. We're moving a little bit more to the right side of the road. But we have yet to meet the car completely. This is our Christian existence. Christ shines a light into our life, and we are shaped by it. But there is still so much more coming of Christ to know and to love and to experience the already and the not yet. Today's parable and the Lord's Prayer are spoken in the already of the Christian relationship with God that's expressed in prayer, but addresses the not yet of God's justice being fully manifested on earth. 
And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long in helping them? I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. And yet, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? While for Ronnie Millsap, the parable of the widow and the unjust judge would rightfully raise questions about God's judgment, Jesus uses the parable to raise questions about our faithfulness. But not in the way that Ronnie's grandmother asked the question. She hoped and she prayed that if she did it the right way, God would turn into this fairy godparent and grant her her wish for Ronnie. It is an understandable desire. When a loved one suffers, who wouldn't want God to fix it? But Luke's view of God and prayer rejects that fixer-upper kind of God, and Luke raises a different question about our faithfulness. Luke wants us asking ourselves, in the experience of God being with us and also being out in the future ahead of us, have we been faithful in our praying forward to justice? Not just praying for justice, but praying forward to justice. In our prayers, we often mention those who are discriminated against, but have we prayed them into God's future? Our prayer chain lifts up those who are sick and lonely, but have we carried those people to God's future when illness is no more? Have we prayed for a cure for cancer so that it is never a power in our life? Our pastoral prayers speak of the war with Russia and Ukraine, but have we called that situation forward into God's everlasting peace? In our litanies, we utter a desire for guidance for religious and political leaders, but have we prayed those leaders forward into God's desire? We cry out and lament concerning pollution and global warming and drought and famine and extinction, but have our fears flowed forth into a new relationship and a new stewardship for God's creation. And yet, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Will God find us praying forward to justice, to a time when everything is made right? I believe in praying in private and saying grace at the dinner table and gathering each Sunday are all part of the expressions of our faith but we are also called to pray forward to God's not yet time. Those in the civil rights movement knew this. They didn't just gather for worship where they sang and prayed and listened to sermons. They didn't just go out and protest at the segregated lunch counters or schools and bus lines. Their protests were prayer meetings. They marched to Selma singing spirituals to God that so the world could overhear their prayer and be moved to a God that shows no partiality. They gathered at the mall in Washington, D.C. and prayed their dream to God in such a way that the world could actually envision God's reign. They linked arms and lifted up God's name as police dogs and fire hoses were turned on them in the streets of Birmingham so that the world would feel God's rage. 
They planted seeds of equality. To move the world toward justice is to pray forward to the coming of man. In that first chapter of Genesis, after creating humans, God gives humans the authority to rule over the planet on God's behalf. And much of the rest of the Bible is a story of the many ways that humans can mess things up. Beginning in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve turn away from God by eating forbidden fruit. A chapter later, Cain kills his brother Abel. And in the next chapter, Lamech kills a man. And by Genesis chapter 6, the earth is so filled with violence that God grieves he even made human beings and believes he must end this experiment and start over. And that's just the first six chapters of the Bible. These stories are not told in scripture to recount ancient history, but to teach us about ourselves. We can be a violent people. In the last century, over 100 million people died as a result of war. Millions more died from starvation. Nearly 60 years after the Civil Rights Act, racism continues to impact our world. And that doesn't even begin to name the many personal demons that we wrestle with here today. Pride, indifference, addiction, materialism, and so many more. And beneath all of that is the idolatry of allowing something else to have the throne of our heart. We are not innocent people. And in response to all of this, Jesus tells us to pray, Thy kingdom come. The Lord's Prayer calls us to examine the world around us and ask, where does the world as it is not align with where the world as it should be? What would our world look like if God's will was done on earth as it is in heaven? Every public policy decision, every social issue, every place humans suffer is somehow meant to be affected by you and I praying the Lord's Prayer. Just watching the evening news should drive us to our knees in prayer. The Lord's Prayer is more than just a prayer. It is a vision to strive toward, a call to action, and a roadmap of faith and character. Each of us has a part to play in the coming of God's kingdom and in doing God's will on earth as it is in heaven. Are you ready to play your part? Let us pray. Gracious God, so much of what happens on earth is not your will. Write on our hearts your vision of what you want this world to be. Help us to offer ourselves to your service. Use us to close the gap between what the world is and what the world should be so that your kingdom may come, your will may be done in our life, in our community, and on earth as it is in heaven. For it is in your name we ask these things. Amen.